This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Hees. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and thank you so much for tuning in, listeners. We really appreciate it. And uh, we're excited and proud to bring you another great episode of the Habitat Podcast. This week we have Zach Haas from Wisconsin. He is a specialist when it comes to pond and lake management. So in the past we've talked about ponds down stuff, you know, wildlife ponds with um, the pond boss. That was episode 44 with Bob Lusk, the pond boss. So now we're switching gears and we're heading north. Zach is from Wisconsin. He works in the Midwest with some of his clients. We want to give you guys the northern version of water holes, wildlife ponds for habitat, for hunting, for your property. So we have a great conversation with Zach, and guess what? He's another deer nut like the rest of us. So I found it very, uh, very intriguing, a very great conversation. We cover all things water holes, water health, um, how to create these ponds on your property, where to put them, how to hunt over them and around them. And it's just a really great conversation full of information and very timely because you could put one of these water holes in right now. You know, it's hot out this fall. You'll be ready when you have one of these installed. It's just, it's, it's a cool conversation. I'm excited for you guys to hear it. Let us know what you think. I'd like to uh, tell everybody about the website over at habitatpodcast.com. We have all of our hats and decals up there. Um, our land plan services up there. We also have a new journal up there, some cool articles going up on there. So check that out at habitatpodcast.com. I want to thank Sony Creek Realty 
for their support of this show. Chad over at Stony Creek is uh, a partner of our podcast here, and he is selling properties uh, pretty quickly these days. He had one the other day where he put a sign out, had an offer later that day on this piece of ground here in Michigan. So if you have any um, need to either buy or sell your recreational property, check out Chad and the team over at Stony Creek Realty. So stonycreekoutdoors.com, Lincoln Roan from Packer Max, he's actually uh, an agent over there as well. So we know they're a bunch of good dudes. We know that personally. And then um, be sure to tune in next week. Right now it's the end of June. Next week, first week of July, we're going to do another Facebook Live Trivia Night with Chad. So be sure to tune into that over at the Habitat Podcast Facebook. I'd also like to thank Packer Max, HuntWise, Killer Food Plots, 5-2 Outdoors, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, and the Habitat Hook for your support of our show. Guys, thank you all once again for tuning in. Let's get the show kicked off with Zach Haas from Wisconsin, Everything Wildlife Ponds. All right, everybody, welcome back. We have uh, co-host Brian Hallbly on the line and a special guest tonight, Zach Haas. How you guys doing tonight? Doing good. Doing real good. Thanks, Jared. No problem, guys. Thanks for uh, hopping on here, recording another great episode. This is going to be uh, a, a pretty special one. We've been talking to Zach pretty pretty on and off or mostly off for a long time now. <laughs> Zach reached out a, a while back when we had our, our last pond discussion. It was right about that same time uh, on episode 44 with Bob Lusk about ponds in the south and pond habitat. And that was all down south. So now we're switching gears, and we're going to talk ponds and habitat up here in the in the north and midwest with Zach. So, Zach, without further ado, man, let's get her going. Let's hear about where you're from, uh, what you do for a living, family, all that good stuff. Go ahead and paint us a picture. Yeah, so um, pretty much I live right up here in Wisconsin, southeastern Wisconsin, um, little town of uh, Rosendale, so pretty much... Uh, near like Fond du Lac, Lake Winnebago area. <clears throat> and pretty much we're in one of those typical little Wisconsin towns where we have a church and a bar and that's about it. <laughs> but uh, I live here with my wife. I have two kids, um, a three-year-old boy and a one-year-old daughter. And um, pretty much, I mean, for overall for me, it's uh, right in this country and stuff like that. So we're away from the city, stuff that way, away from Milwaukee and all that kind of stuff out in God's country. But uh, for me, for work, uh, so essentially I'm the senior biologist and the director of operations at Wisconsin Lake and Pond Resource. And we are a professional pond management and pond construction company. Um, And we also even deal with lake management as well. So we deal with the whole state of Wisconsin, and we also travel nationwide for actually building ponds. So see quite a bit of a different country, but for us it's mainly the Midwest and dealing with the cold and the hot. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And a couple young kids, too. Man, we can commiserate. <laughs> yeah, it keeps you busy. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. And um, how did you get in that field, even? I mean, it sounds like a pretty fun job. Yeah, yeah. No, for me, it all started, like, way back. So, actually, my dad had a small little uh, company where he designed uh, ponds. And he also, like, installed kind of like the big sewage lagoons and things that way. And um, we also had kind of a big farm pond that I always fished on since I was a little kid, and water just always interested me. So I just kind of kept with it, and eventually 
found kind of my calling and started as an intern um, back actually when I was only 16 years old. I kind of started underneath our owner and really dove into the nits and grits of it and slowly developed into not only uh, dealing with the water, the biology, but then also meshing it with my passion of hunting. And that's where I really dove in and took everything to the next level um, at our own work. But, uh, yeah, for me, being on the water every single day, um, seeing fish, fixing issues in, in different water resources, it's been incredible. So you mentioned it there. You're also a huge hunter, right? I mean, absolutely. Scoping your, your profile right now, and you got a gigantic buck on there. Is that a Wisconsin buck, your cover picture? Yep, that's Wisconsin, yep. Good night, buddy. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, and and it looks like you film some some hunting stuff too, is that correct? Absolutely, yeah. Actually, uh, from about 2007 to, and I want to say about 2015, I actually had my own hunting show. Oh, uh, wow. Called it Hostile Hunting, and uh, yeah, we were on a bunch of different platforms, um, reaching right around like half a million viewers a year, and uh Kind of whenever the market got flooded, we kind of uh, backed out of it and also had kids, so I kind of put a kibosh for that for a while. <laughs> nice. Is there any place that we can still see uh, any of your videos? Um, I still have a lot of stuff, like even on YouTube, Vimeo and stuff that way. Okay. Um, a lot of the major networks I was on, I don't even know if the content's still there or not. But Yeah, I know when when a lot of those shows or, or networks uh, kind of – drop off i don't think you can just go on there and watch them whenever you want anymore it's not like the internet right correct well cool man i appreciate you hopping on here you sound like uh you fit in very well around here that's that's pretty (laughs) awesome um so wildlife ponds i want to talk about ponds tonight it's middle of summer or maybe beginning of summer depending on how you want to look at it um it's hot out you know, we're working on getting our stuff sprayed and ready, our food plots ready for this fall and putting some water holes. And just, uh, I figured now would be a great time to, to have you on. Can you kind of talk about maybe the first couple steps and what somebody would do if they own a small piece of ground to uh, put in a wildlife pond? Like, like what would be your first couple requirements or things you should look at, that type of thing? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, first and foremost, you know, that is one of the biggest things, as you guys know, is you got to look at the major three things. You know, do you have food, do you have cover, and then what I think a lot of people miss is the water. Um, you know, so I'm always constantly looking for, uh, you know, what kind of natural water sources are there, what kind of ephemeral ponds are present, and kind of base it off even, you know, what kind of deer density you have. You know, for me, it's very similar to bedding zones. I mean, you need multiple on a property. Um, so I'm constantly looking at, okay, how can I make a property set up right that the deer have as much water as they need? I mean, obviously they get a lot for their, from their food and things that way, but how much actual pure water source are they getting? And I deal with a lot of like uh, consultations and stuff in my ponds where people think a marsh is adequate or they might have a cold water stream, things that way. And it's just not quite enough or even what really a deer wants to drink out of. You know, so I'm constantly looking for those little tiny ephemeral ponds that are on properties. I'm looking for, you know, natural water holes that may be spring-fed. Um, I try to avoid, I'll see the cattle ponds, things that way, like you'll see down in, you know, Missouri, Iowa, things that way, just because of water quality issues. So ultimately, we're trying to get, you know, quality water. So 
I'm constantly trying to find out where and where and how can I get it and make it so someone can do it without breaking the bank and keeping something where they can have a lot of deer hit it and not go away. Um, you know, so when I'm doing my water sources, I mean, there's a lot of things and we'll probably get into it, but with like the tubs and kiddie pools and things that way. Um, but a lot of my research is based off of, I deal with a lot with the University of Colorado, uh, Montana State, um, yeah, Wyoming State, and, and actually a lot of it deals with EHD. So um, I'm always looking for quality water, you know, and there's a difference of just having water and having the next level of water. So that's kind of where I guess I, I um, start is, okay, how can we get you water and how can we make sure it's the right water? Okay, so I guess uh, let's dive into that a, a little bit further. You mentioned marsh and stream not being maybe the, the perfect um, type of water, and you mentioned like a ephemeral pond. Is that what you said? What is that, yeah. and, and why aren't a marsh and a stream uh, what you're looking for? Yeah, so first and foremost, an ephemeral pond is a pond that um, kind of exists out of um, rain events, things that way. So uh, natural crevice, you could say, in the landscape that fills up with water, but it can dry up over time. So it's not okay. a full-blown pond, but it, it's there for, let's say, in the spring or um, when you get like some of these fall rains and things that way. They kind of just pop up and then they disappear. Um, it's almost like a false pond, you could say. Um, but yeah, as far as, yeah, like water quality-wise, so... A lot of people, like especially when I did a lot of consultations, like up in um, Upper Peninsula, Michigan, and just even the lower panhandle of Michigan, you know, a lot of those guys have little ponds and stuff on their property, or a lot of guys have a lot of streams. Well, the biggest thing with a white-tailed deer, you know, and as you guys know, animals are a lot of times smarter than we are as humans, but a deer wants to drink out of a water source that isn't freezing cold. Uh, main reason being is it shocks their system. You know, as, if anything we've learned through habitat is anything that shocks an animal system, they tend to try to avoid. Well, it's no different with uh, a lot of times these spring-fed marshes with your cold water streams, all that. The water temps, I mean, a lot of times these temperatures can be down to about 41 degrees Fahrenheit. They drink that. It actually does put a shock in the system. That's why they prefer a more neutral uh, water temp. Um, and the same concept is true over actually overseas in Europe. Um, for people actually will not refrigerate many of their cold or their, a lot of their drinks because they believe it shocks your system and makes you unhealthier. Um, so it's the kind of same concept with, with whitetails and really any any animals, they want to have a neutral temperature water source to drink out of. Um, furthermore, going to even quality water, like a marsh, you know, a lot of times it's full of a lot of your runoff, a lot of your heavy metals, um, a lot of your, even your fertilizers, your chemicals that come off farm fields, things that way, and they kind of sit there stagnant. It's not exactly the most pure water for a deer to drink out of. They want those more naturally fed um, runoff ponds that are in the woods or, you know, on a field edge that's not by egg, things that way. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, they're smarter than us. So, hmm. uh, I mean, and, and I, I'd agree with you on the smarter than us thing, except for a cold beer is better than a warm beer. So. <laughs> yeah, I hear you there. I agree. <laughs> no, that's that's a great point, though. I'm glad you made that point. That's pretty interesting stuff. Sorry, continue. Yeah, definitely, definitely. You know, and, and, and there, there are the two, obviously, you know, we've seen, you know, why I stress so much about quality water is, and a lot of it goes to EHD. So the only reason why the Cody's midge even exists in these water pools is 
it's not just because of the mud flat. I mean, that's kind of been stretched, and the truth's been really stretched now with social media, but a lot of it is actually lack of competition. So the lower the water quality is, the less macro and micro invertebrates that are present, and also less aquatic insects that are present. So the Achillicotes midge does not do well with competition. As soon as there's competing sources, they tend to be one of the first things actually to disappear out of that water source. So when you see these cattle ponds that are just full of cow manure, you know, or fertilizer, things that way, and the systems are essentially killed off, that's where they thrive. So that's why we try to get these kind of wildlife ponds built to have a self-sustaining ecosystem so that way it's always quality water so you have less of an impact on your deer herd end of the day. That's a, a very interesting point. Is there um, are there things you can do to ponds or water holes that like we put in that are a lot smaller that maybe do not have a self-sustaining ecosystem, or is it just like you're a little more at risk there? Yeah, I mean the biggest thing you know, like, things to watch out for is like some of these guys will put you know they'll dig their let's just say a tub in, and they'll put their mineral site right next to it. Well, anytime that salt water goes into that pool, it's killing all your natural bacteria. It's killing a lot of your macro and microinvertebrates that are existing in your aquatic insects, and it's making just more room for the cuticodes to spread. You know, so things like that. So trying to keep it away from areas where there's cow traffic or keeping it away from mineral. I mean, you don't want the mineral near the water. Um, you just want to have so the system's not hurt in a way. Um, now, there are things that you can always add to water. I mean, you know, plants are a biggie. Um, anytime you can get natural um, plants growing around there, it definitely helps as a buffer zone. Um, even the prairies and all that kind of stuff. Um, anything to help kind of filter things going towards that pond is huge. And, you know, another thing guys do, too, and I, it makes me cringe every time I see it, but they put the pools in and they just let them sit. And suddenly, before you know it, they turn into these green, soupy waters I mean, you're just asking for issues at that point. Um, you know, even from planktonic algae blooms that can have cyanotoxins and actually hurt the animal again through shock. So you're sometimes doing more harm than good when you don't focus on having a, a clear, good water source. Uh, when they, you know, let's just say, you know, take the shortcut, which I think we've all learned that the shortcut is usually bad. <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. Zach, what kind of plants can you put in those ponds and uh, walk us through the varieties that you use? And, you know, is there different ones for different regions? Yeah, I mean, like for up here, you know, what we like to focus on, so I'd say the top plant that, like, I see around ponds, especially for more of the deer habitat side, would be a plant called arrowhead, um, always known as the duck potato. So that plant not only helps filter water, but also acts as a food source for deer. Um, they actually name it the aquatic food plot, essentially. Uh, okay. But, so that's one good plant out there. But otherwise, really good plants out there are actually, I mean, if there are cattails, if there are rushes, sedges, anything that way are great filters. Um, and for instance, like a cattail, it's really one of the number one filter sources in the world. Uh, back when I did a lot of water resource quality management um, courses, things that way with my professors, you know, we even were working on a study where we had a 40-acre cattail uh, marsh and essentially what it was was a constructed wetland that they were putting the city's sewage through the wetland and by the time it was actually exiting that 40 acre constructed wetland it was actually passing most EPA water quality drinking standards 
Wow. You know, so that's why it's incredible. Yeah, exactly. You know, so that's where they yeah, are. Like sedges, cattails, um, you know, bull rushes, um, spike rush. Those are all really good filter plants. Um, but then there's plants that the deer would like to eat too, like arrowhead, um, plantains a biggie um, that they like to eat on. Um, in small amounts, actually blue flag iris can be another one that the deer will actually eat in the winter, which I find very unique. Um, we're actually going to it up and eat, eat the iris. Um, but, yeah, so there's a wide variety. I mean, that's kind of the main stuff we do up here in Wisconsin and in the, up north here. You know, there's a lot of different plants even down south where people can get away a little bit more. We're pretty restrictive here with our DNR with plant-wise. But, sure. uh, but yeah, I mean, the sky is the limit where you can really get these things filtered out. So are there anything, any ideas that you have or that you use uh, for very small water holes or, or ponds that maybe you don't have plants in or you, or you cannot plant something in there like a tub or, or something? I know our friend Nick over at Killer Food Plus, we had him on recently. He's got something that he uses, but, like, what's your view on all that and, and what do you use? I mean, a regular pond, like your like your decorative pond by your front porch, that type of stuff even, or, or let's go into that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, a lot of things to keep, you know, the, the unique thing about the pond management industry is a lot of the ideas are driven actually from the wastewater management uh, industry. Okay. You know, so we kind of take their ideas and we just put them into water. Um, so we use a lot of bacteria, enzymes, things that way. Um, you know, something kind of similar to what Nick has there at Killer Food Plots. Um, but we use a lot of bacteria and enzymes to, for one, promote the natural beneficial bacteria present. Um, because for some reason, everyone gives bacteria a bad rap, but we actually need that present. Um, so adding bacteria is a biggie. Um, as goofy as it sounds, pond coloring. Um, you know, so, yeah, it makes your pool look blue and and might look goofy when it's in the middle of the woods that you have this little golf course pond pretty much, but it restricts sunlight and reduces plant and algae growth, which is really good for your system as well. It's one of the cheapest, most effective management tools there is. Wow. Um, you know, so we use a lot of pond colorants. Uh, yeah, like bacteria, we use both a muck-reducing uh, bacterium, and we also use water-quality bacterium that focuses more on the water column. Um, they're all aerobic bacteria, but in shallow pools, there's typically enough dissolved oxygen to do enough work. Um, but those are kind of more the natural means that people can do. Um, I actually have quite a few clients where they use actually these little water-soluble packages of bacteria that's simple enough where you can drive right next to your little water hole, throw one in, let it dissolve, and keep on moving on with on the four-wheeler just to keep things healthy and, and working. Um, same thing with the dyes and all that kind of stuff. So it definitely helps. Um, the biggest thing, like, I have a couple outfitter buddies down in Iowa, and, you know, they have the big galvanized tanks that they use for their water. And what I have them do is regularly is add pond color, um, for one, to reduce the sunlight penetration, to reduce how much, you know, algae growth you have. But it actually also helps keep the water a little cooler as well. Um, so those are all good things to do that are really affordable for the normal guy. Um you know, in case the guy does can't put in a wildlife pond, you should be looking at these little packets of bacteria and enzymes and, and pond coloring to help you. And where can a normal guy like us get that type of stuff at? Is that like at your normal, you know, family farm and home type thing? Yeah, it's like a lot of it. I mean, there's a lot of different stores that will have like your little, you know, some co-ops uh, carry a lot of this stuff. Um, actually, Bob Luss, um website, he has a lot of, a lot of that stuff. 
Um, but even the companies like um, the one I work for, we also carry the kind of stuff and help through with rates and how much you need and all that kind of stuff. So most states have professionals like myself um, that work in the aquatic industry that know a lot about the bacteria, enzymes, pondies, things that way. They can kind of give you the right amounts and right quantities and, and types for your situation. That's interesting and nice to know that got lots of options out there for different uh, landowners, wherever they might be. Absolutely. So, Zach, we're heading into summer now. I think we're two days in, and uh, lots of stuff have to get caught up at the farm, but what can we do this time of year for summer projects? Can we start a water hole now, or is that something we should do other times of the year? Nope. Uh, with water holes, I mean, I'll be, I put in my ponds all the way up until, I mean, almost October. Um, it's kind of the same principle like a lot of times when I'm digging a pond or whatever it is, usually you're in and out pretty quickly. Um, but, yeah, I mean, basically we're going to get that time frame. Let's say if a drought hits again, um, especially in the Midwest, I mean, we've been trying to avoid EHD like the plague. And trying to get those quality water sources to give your, your deer something, it's nothing wrong. I mean, some people frown on it because they think you're just adding to the issue. But um, now is a great time to get it in. You know, especially with these deer needing that water source, the does are lactating. They need a lot more water consumption um, to keep that milk production going for the fawns. Um, same with bucks. I mean, they need quite a bit of water, too, right now with anagrills. So now's a great time to start getting in there all the way up to fall. Okay. And um, maybe you can help us walk us through some of the pros and cons of water holes versus ponds because a lot of guys, you know, they'll pick up a 100-gallon uh, liner and just – dig it out and stick it in the ground. They might not have the equipment yep. or the time to put a big pond in. So if you could walk us through maybe some of the pros and cons of each and, and how we can maximize either one. Sure, yeah, and I'll kind of start with the tubs because I'd say that's the most popular thing, you know, we, we're seeing out there, especially, you know, on all the posts on, like, the Habitat Manager's page and all this on social media. Um, so obviously the main, main pro is you don't need heavy equipment in there. You can take a shovel. You know, drive out there, put your tub in, you know, dig it in, put your stick in it and walk away. Um, you know, with the, with the pros of that, I mean, too, it's, you know, it's less intrusive. It's, you know, you can put it in a smaller, tighter area. You don't have to, let's say, remove trees or anything that way. Um, and it's quick and easy, you know. Um, and so I'd say for a lot of people, that is the route they almost have to do. It's also a little more financially feasible. You know, you might sure. go and, let's say, find a – Fifteen dollar, you know, little or a fifteen gallon tank, cut it in half, and you put it in the ground. Well, that's might have cost you ten bucks. Um, you know, so it's a lot more feasible for most people to do that route. Um, the con of that, though, is those little tubs. For one, they tend to fill in a lot quicker with your sediments, things that way. Um, your mucks. Obviously, you gotta get the stick in there because if you don't have a stick in there and here comes little, you know, squirrel falls in, drowns, and now you got a stinky mess. Um, you know, so that's obviously a big con. You know, the other one thing I'd say is since they essentially are usually very shallow water systems and they tend to heat up a lot more um, than your normal little wildlife pond. Uh, I mean, I've done some surface data on some of these little tubs that we put out, and I'm getting some surface temps in the middle of summer that are, you know, almost 95 degrees. Wow. You're getting to the point where a deer doesn't want that anymore. Or if they do drink it, it's not doing them any good. It's no different than us. If we're out there working out all day, 
outside, you don't want a boiling hot glass of water because it almost makes it worse. Right. You know, it's, it's very similar to a deer. So now you're actually at that other spectrum that it's too hot. Um, on the flip side, you know, when these things are left alone, you know, they tend to grow a little bit more of the, I would say, harmful bacteria a little quicker. Um, they tend to grow a lot more planktonic algae a little quicker. And what I always kind of call it, and I guess I self-proclaimed kind of what I call it, is I always say it's the aquarium effect. You know, when you have these little tubs, it's no different than your fish tank. If you fill that fish tank up, fill it with water, leave it sit out in the sun, and don't do a thing to it, what's going to happen to it? It's going to turn green and nasty and unhealthy, and it's going to start having different bacteria and different um, toxins and all that kind of stuff that build up unless you go in there and clean your tank. You know, so that's the biggest thing about these little tiny tanks is people need to realize they got to get out there and clean them. Um, you know, I'd say if you can do it annually, great, but at least every other year they should be pulled out, pressure washed, and put back in to keep that that quality of water up. Um, time and time again, guys just keep leaving them buried in, and then they just get worse and worse till you just have a little bit of water and a whole bunch of problems. Um, so that's guilty. kind of like a guilty. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's, it's one of those things that it's, they're easy to do, but there's a lot more work at the end of the day that people realize. Um, but what a nice boat is cleaning them is nice because they are small. It doesn't take much to take them back out, bring them back home, clean them out quick, put them back in. Um, and really you could do that every spring, you know, kind of almost as a spring, you know, to do like you'd take leaves off your lawn, you're going to get and you get your pond started back up. So just kind of a good rule of thumb to kind of keep them clean annually just to start your, your season out right. Um, so that's kind of the, the tubs, pros, and cons. For wildlife ponds, you know, the biggest thing there is, so I, I guess I'll start with the biggest con is, obviously it's you need usually some equipment to get out there, you know, whether it be a, a tractor, a skid loader, a mini excavator. You know, you need something to put it in. Two, right. it's not the cheapest thing in the world. I mean, if you put in, let's say, even a 25 by 25 pond, you know, you might be costing you 300 bucks you know, compared to that $15 you spent on a tank. But now on the pro of that, all right, so let's say you have your 15-gallon tub that you threw out there or even 100 gallons, whatever it may be. Now I put in a 25 by 25 uh, pond, I'm holding roughly 5,000 gallons of water. So who's kind of winning there, uh, especially in a drought aspect? So I've seen a lot of these um, sure. little tubs, they, they dry up, especially in a drought year when we have high heat and let's say the guy that does put it in the middle of a food plot and it dries up. He's out there every single, you know, let's say three days filling it up with the tub from his, you know, his garden holes or whatever it may be. Whereas me, I'm, I'm leaving that 5,000-gallon wildlife pond sit, and I don't have to worry about filling that thing again. Now, I'm not intruding on that, that mature buck. I'm leaving him be, um, never, not really invading the area, which, you know, people like me that, you know, run cell cans and all that because you're trying to avoid kicking your mature deer out, that's huge. Um but in sure. there, too, with, with more water comes a higher quality of water. You have more water volume to play with to, you know, have that ecosystem, to hold more deer. I mean, we've all seen that one doe, that big matriarch doe that says, nope, this is my, you know, mineral site, my bait site, my food plot, whatever it may be. You know, she runs the roost. With a wildlife pond, you at least have more area to 
more deer can go into it, whereas those tubs, I mean, I've seen some nasty does that are pretty much like, no, this is my water, and that's it. Right. <laughs> and now you have to put a bunch more in just to please your herd, whereas you yeah, have just a couple of these big ponds, now you can have a whole family come in and not have those issues. Um, and then the next thing I'd say that's a really big pro with these wildlife ponds is the fact that you can make them essentially a um, – aquatic food plot you know you can plant things that are desirable to a deer that they want to eat um even another one is actually horsetail deer love to eat horsetail around a pond um but you can have all these different plants around a pond now that the deer are coming on they're drinking they're eating they're feeling comfortable um and another thing too what i love about these wildlife ponds and i see it a lot in the midsummer um up here where i'll see a doe bring her fawn in and she'll bring that fawn where that fawn's, I mean, chest chest deep. She's up to her brisket, and they're staying cool. You know, they're just just like a dog wants to run into the water and lay down after you've been hunting pheasants all day. No different than a deer. They want to go in and cool down. So right. I see see that quite a bit, these larger ponds, that they can actually have that luxury in a way. Um, and now you're helping your deer, once again, stay cool, stay, you know, healthier because it's not shocking its system. So what uh, would be a minimum size you'd recommend on a pond? What's the smallest you'd go? I'd probably say 25 by 25 because um, essentially and the reason being is we'd like to do a four-to-one slope. So essentially all that means is for, you know, every four feet you gain a foot of water. Um, so it essentially puts the middle of the pond you know, roughly right around three to four feet of water so you have a little bit more water. Um, as you're making it smaller, you're starting to get them almost too shallow. Um, but with that said, I mean, I still have guys doing 10 by 10, um, 15 by 15, just because that's all they could they could do. Um, and it works great. But uh, I would say my ideal would be a minimum of 25 by 25. Okay. And is there a uh, rule of thumb for how many you should have per acre or for your property size? I'd say when you're on a property, no matter what, have two two of them. Uh, okay. Two sources, so different than, you know, uh, your food sources, um, people that do run mineral, all that, because what I found through all my years is you'll always have one that's dominated by a doe family. It's just inevitable. You're going to get that to happen. And having multiple sources, you can make room for it, or your bucks can kind of be on one and does on the other. And it's pretty played out pretty true. So I would say a minimum of two for property, but what I like to do is, Really, per per 40, I like to see two of them. Um, so, you know, if you're at 80, you know, I'd start trying to usually add every 40, I try to add another pond. You know, so if you have 80 acres, I usually have three. Um, 120, I have four. Um, and kind of keep adding that way and then distancing them so that way they're in ideal spots as well for the deer herd, you know, whether it be close to bedding. Um, sure. You know, summertime, I like to have some that are in the shade so they don't have to go in, into the sun. They can stay up in a, let's say, north-facing uh, bedding zone that can go near a water source that's in the woods um, just to get a little bit of uh, cooler area. Um, but so there, too, you know, your placement is huge, and depending on how your contour of your land and all that kind of stuff plays into effect. I mean, with, that, with anything, whether it be bedding, prairie, all that stuff, it always plays a big role. So how do you decide on uh, where, where to place it, what you're talking about there? If you got – uh, a flat farm or, or one with hills, how do you approach that? Yep, so so a lot of, uh, like, the flat areas, stuff like that, I mean, if you don't have a, for sure, like, oh, here's exactly where a pond needs to be because I already have water here. Um, what I always like to do is, 
you know, for one, I love to have them in transition zones. So if I'm coming from one bedding and going to, let's say, another bedding, and right in the middle there, I like to have a pond. Um, high and dry is, a, is probably the best areas. So if you're up in a, in a spot where, you know, or if you're in a spot where there's no water, and get it where the deer doesn't have to move far. I mean, we all know that the, really the biggest buck you have is the laziest buck you have. The less they have, they have to move, the healthier they're going to be because they don't have to struggle to find things. So I like to try to keep things close to the bedding sources, mm-hmm. their primary food sources. And the weird thing about a pond is, you know, so you never want them like in the middle of a, of, of a field where everything can see them when they're drinking because they are vulnerable when they drink. They're putting their head down to get a drink of water. They're putting themselves as, as a vulnerable, you know, prey victim at that point. So typically we like to put them on edges. So let's say in a corner of a field where they naturally come out, but they kind of, you know, stagger, or they kind of hold back before they enter the main field. I like to put ponds in those areas. And I try to take advantage of those natural funnel areas where they're popping out. Here's a pond. If they want to just drink and go back into cover, they can. If they want to come feed past that point, they can. Um, but since it's a vulnerable point, you want them to feel comfortable. Um, you know, it's kind of almost like you want to use the concept, like if you were trapping coyotes or, or fox, you don't want to pigeonhole them where they feel like everything can see them, but, but they can't see anything. So you want where they can visually look at everything but be close to cover to run back. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, even when we're laying out food plots, we're even thinking about that in the same type of manner. Mm-hmm. Yep. So what about uh, – I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no. What do you got? <laughs> uh, what about other alternatives to water holes and ponds? I've seen some companies come out with some water systems that they have. It's like almost recirculating or some type of deal. Have you ever had any experience with those? And yeah, I mean, like, you know, I've seen like uh, you know, Banks has their wild water. Uh, is that kind of what you're talking? Yeah, yeah, that'd be yeah. So, yeah, so you know, so I've used, I've seen people use some of them. I've had clients use some of them. Um, they're definitely they have their pros and cons. Obviously, you know, the biggest thing I say is a lot of those systems. I've seen that people have to fill them a lot because um, of how they're designed. It seems like they don't hold enough water in their in their trough, and they evaporate either a lot. Yeah, or I wondered just, about that. Yeah, I mean, so, like, I actually had one client, he had a bunch of those wild waters, and, and he was going in there, I mean, they're 100 gallons, and he was going in there every couple of weeks to fill them, but his trail cameras weren't showing that it was deer drinking. It was just naturally evaporating because it was in the middle of his food plot. So now he's out there nonstop with his, his uh, ranger filling the thing up. So, you know, and a lot of those ones seem like since they don't have the actual water surface area to – keep things a little nicer. They tend to get a little nastier and need cleaning quite more often. You know, kind of like almost like a little bucket that's sitting outside of your house and it has a little bit of water and it tends to get nasty pretty quick. Sure, yeah. I've seen the kind of same kind of thing with those that seems like there's a little more upkeep and a little more, you know, time that you need to spend to film and keep them nice. Whereas it seems like a lot of like uh, just, you know, a little kiddie pool or a pond take even less work than, than those do. So great ideas, but I just don't think they have quite hit the the point yet. So that's a pretty good point. I think, um, honestly, my little maybe 25-gallon toasts that I put in the ground, uh, they hold water all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not out in the sun. They're kind of in the cover, yep. like you're yep. saying, and, and they, they do pretty well. Um, I fill them up with my Packer Max every now and then if they're looking sure. a little bit low, but it's uh, that's a good point. Um, 
Yeah, and you know, and that's the thing too is when you're putting them in, you know, especially like those little tubs, you know, make sure that you are collecting a little bit of the runoff, rainwater to help you because, you know, the biggest thing is that you know people always want, want to do is they want to go in and check everything out. The less you can go in there, the better it is, if, especially if you're trying to harvest a mature animal. So, yeah, take advantage of your contour, your slopes, all that to keep those things full. No, that's that's a good point. And if you listen to the show, you know we like to stay out of our our plots and yep. our whole properties as, as much as we can. And uh, so, do you have stands at at these locations? And I guess before I even get into the hunting side of things, because that's what I'm really excited about. Um, one more thing on the on the pond side of things. If people want to add like, fish, I know you could go down this road for a while, but say we're up here in the north and you know, what's a good couple species of fish that you can maybe throw in there for your kids or something? Yeah, I mean, I think up here, I'd say our, our biggest two, which have always done really well, is just your regular bluegill and your largemouth bass. Um, I'd say that's been the most popular species that our clients stock. Um, you start getting some more water depth, that's when you can start, you know, getting things like your crop, you know, black crappie, smallmouth bass, um, things that way. But the biggest thing we struggle with up here is obviously – we get very cold and we get ice. Right. Uh, you know, so a lot of times if we have a pond that's, let's say, less than 10 foot of a max depth, that's when we got to start thinking of what fish can take a little bit more of a dissolved oxygen struggle. So actually your strongest one out there would be a yellow perch. Um, they can take uh, dissolved oxygen recordings down past, you know, 3 milligram per liter. You know, actually your large lump bass stuff, that won't even survive down to that. Um, but I'd say your, your main ones are definitely largemouth, bluegill. A lot of people do hybrids up here. Um, the only one species that really we cannot stock here is uh, grass carp. That is a big no-no here in at least Wisconsin because of the Asian carp uh, epidemic we have going on. But, uh, but yeah, no, I'd say that's the, the biggies, bass and, and bluegills, which are always good for kids. <laughs> no, for sure. So I just thought of another question then. If you were to stock a – Say it's a quarter-acre pond, maybe, you know, eight, eight, ten-foot deep with, you know, 25 nice-sized bluegill. Or, I'm sorry, just let's go small bluegill for once. Sure. And then, or for instance, and then say uh, the next summer you catch them there, you know, they're medium-sized bluegill. And then um, maybe the following summer, your second summer, you're expecting them to be pretty nice, or even that winter, and you can't even find one ever again. Um, what happens at that point? Have you ever experienced something like that? Where you pretty much your fish disappear? Yep. Yeah, so I mean, up here we see, you know, I'd say it's a pretty common thing up here because essentially what we'll see is we have our fish kills happen underneath the ice. So it seems like your fish should be coming out every year, and then, yeah, one year you'll come out and there won't be any fish present because they actually died underneath the ice, floated underneath the ice, decomposed, and fell back to the bottom. So now you're sitting with this nutrient-rich pond. It's probably going to grow algae really bad, and you got to think about restocking. So for us, I mean, the biggest insurance is always having aeration, you know, all winter long, um, having one hole. And it's not as much as the oxygen issue as, like, for up here, any natural pond, it's all the organic decomposition that kills fish. So it's building, you know, CO2, methane, sulfur, all these harmful gases, and that's actually what's killing your fish all winter. Um, and for up, up wow. here, we're a bunch of ice fishermen, and if you drill in the ice, you can actually smell those pods that are going to have a problem because you'll smell that rotten egg smell will come out of the hole. 
And that's a bad sign that your gases are building actually to a toxicity level that might kill your fish. So that's why we have to aerate up here um, just to keep it so our fish pretty much don't get suffocated due to other things in the water. Great explanation. No, that that um, that uh, circumstance I just kind of listed that happened at my uncle's farm with uh, with my dad and my uncle. So my dad could not find any fish this past winter there, and I thought, well, they have to be dead. Where else could they have gone? You know. So yeah, yeah I mean the other only other thing, and you know, is like for us, we get a lot of bad river otter problems. Okay. Uh, and that's the other thing. I mean, you get a family of otters up here in the winter. And they essentially travel in their little group, you know, whether it be two to five otters. And they find a pond that has a very suitable um, prey species, essentially. They'll sit and camp out until that whole pond's wiped out, and then they'll move on to the next pond. Uh, I have one client that has a 10-acre campground pond that was actually used for fishing for its campers, and it was 100% wiped out, 10 acres of fish. And that was only five otters. So it's uh, Yeah. (laughs) No, that opens up all kinds of possibilities, I guess. Um, anywho, thanks for going into that real quick. I I know uh, sure. a lot of people probably want to dive into that further. I I want to keep going and get into how we relate this to killing that big mature buck. So, or yeah. any deer, any deer for that matter. But you know yeah. what we like to chase after, and you're the same way. I guess I want to know. I so I put mine in. I put some cameras on them and. Uh, it's probably the most entertaining trail camera I have, and yep. it's uh, I've had some nice deer drink out of them, a lot of does and fawns, and then in the fall I've had a couple of pictures at night of just an absolute Michigan slob drinking out of one, um, which was very cool, very surprising out of a little, you know, we call them a Teddy Clark water hole, just sure. a little, this little, you know, 10, 15, 20-gallon thing. Now, what what am I doing wrong? What are people doing wrong? What are they doing right? Let's hear how you should relate this to your hunting st- your strategy and your, your habitat set up on your property. Yeah, so like with anything, you know, and, you know, we all see it. It's So I kind of pair it up just like I would food plots. You know, you have your, um, or even just food sources in general, you have your areas where you want to be hunting over the source, and you have other areas that you should be leaving alone just to be that extra source for that animal. Water is the same way. You know, we'll have hunting sources and we'll also have what I'm just going to call kind of, you know, bedroom sources where they can go to it and you're not disturbing them. You know, let's say you have a cell cam watching it, but giving them that other item without your activity on it so they can have it just in case they have to kind of go back and maybe they sense your pressure somewhere else. But, you know, most, a lot of the food plots like I have, I like to put my water sources kind of like I talked earlier, you know, and my entrance of my area. So if I know where deer are coming in, I always have my my source there. And a lot of that concept comes from kind of watching mature animals, how they interact, even walk in a field. You know, you'll have your does, your yearling bucks, you know, you know other year, younger bucks come into your field, and they'll come in early. But it's always that mature buck that comes last. He sits on the transition area, your feathered area, and he glasses the area to make sure it's safe first. That's where I kind of like to have that pond, just to kind of entice it a little bit further, pull him out of that edge, you know, so that you can get this shot. Um, a lot of my clients, I always try to make sure that your ponds, if they are in a food source, are within that 20, 30-yard uh, window so you can get that nice shot before they, let's say, go back into the cover. 
And you're saying that 20, 30-yard window between what would be the cover and what would be the food plot, that soft edge we try to create, the edge feather we try to create. Yeah, like I have that water source really close to that feathered edge, and I just try to get it within, you know, close enough to my stand area that if they just want to come to that water but then go back into the cover quickly, you can get that shot. Gotcha. Um, the amount of times I've seen a mature deer do that where he'll come, he'll drink water, and he'll go back into cover right away, it's amazing. You know, he might not there be there to even feed at all, but he wants his, his water source, which is just on the edge of where he feels comfortable. He's more likely to come to there than in the middle of that food plot in the, you know, wide open. Um, sure. The other strategy I like, and I kind of talked about a little earlier, is I like to have a lot of water sources in my transition areas. So when I talk transition, I'm kind of talking from between different bedding areas. You know, one thing we've obviously all seen with whitetail is they move all day long between their bedding areas. You know, they'll be in, let's say, the southwest bedding, and then they move up to the north, and they move to the east. They're constantly moving within those bedding zones because they feel comfortable in them. I like to have water sources in between those so you can take advantage, sneak in, and almost even get sometimes that middle-of-the-day action on a water hole, especially like early season. You know, and, and now you're right where they want to be. They're, you know, it's shaded. They can get in the water. They can drink while they're going to that next bedding, and you can take advantage of it. So... Um, and when of, you're when you're in that transition, are you still in cover? Is he still feeling secure, or is it kind of in between, like a little bit of a more open area in between two bedding areas? Yeah, so like what I like to do is, you know, it's like I'll put a kind of example like what I have on my own property. Sure. I have I have one bedding area that's a um, has both a north and a south facing hillside, and they actually transition down to a pure south facing hillside. In between there is. Um, a younger maple grove that is pretty well canopied, so it's a little more open. There's not a lot of stem on, on underneath, and they always follow that kind of edge of that. Well, I have the water right on the edge where it's thick to open. They drink that water, and they can start to keep going to their other thick area. So I still try to keep them where they're a little bit um, in the cover, but enough for us I can sneak in and take advantage. Okay, so let's hear a success story. Or, or, and then maybe a failure, um, even on your property, if, if you have one, over a water hole. Yeah, I mean, I'd say the biggest the biggest mistakes I made at first was kind of just letting the land tell me where I had to put a pond whether, rather than me having the deer tell me where to put the pond. Sure. So I would kind of... Same thing with like, food plots, right? People do the same thing with yep. food plots. Yeah, you, they see a big wide open area, like, oh, it has to be a food plot. <laughs> Not necessarily... Right. And it was kind of the same thing with ponds um, where I put my very first one and I put it way too close to the bedding actually. So I'm thinking, I heard this area kind of full of water. I'll put a pond here. So I actually did a little tiny one back in the day where it was maybe, I mean, eight, eight or 10 feet in diameter. And I thought for sure that's all. Oh, that's where I'm going to kill one early season. Well, that's where I ended up actually busting one of my better deer because he was right by bedding in the morning. So I almost put it too close and ruined my chance for most of that season because I kind of busted the whole area out. Um, so that's where you got to kind of make sure it's still further away from their bedroom rather than uh, right in it. Sure. Now, have you or your clients had any nice deer killed over a water hole that you implemented? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, actually, last year, uh, brand new pond, uh, probably I think that one was 30 by 30, the pond was maybe only in for 
I want to say maybe at max of three weeks, and oh, he wow. ended up arrowing um, right around a 18, 19 inch wide, eight point four year old. Wow. Um, so I mean, fresh pond, they can smell that water just like a turtle can smell water. I mean, it's they know it's there, and that deer was in other pieces of the property, but he had never been there. And that water, as soon as that pond started filling with water, he was in it, and then the client got the shot right over the gate, opening weekend. Very, very nice. And what what uh what state was that in? Is it real hot early season there? I mean, it is most of the places, but yeah, so I mean, for like, and that was Wisconsin. Um, okay. You know, so I mean, we had our probably like uh you know eighty eighty degree opening weekend. Yeah, that's great. I'd love to shoot a point that wide. Okay. Yeah. So anything that we're missing on what I would call a wildlife pond or like a hunting or habitat pond that, that we can all put in on our properties here. Anything else that we haven't covered on that? No, I mean, overall, I mean, the biggest thing is, is I'd say it's a really important thing. Just like um, I think prairies are overlooked. So when you're looking at your plan, and I think the thing is, you know, I want to always reiterate to people is think about what you're missing. Stop looking at the food source as much as, you know, the other little principles as you're covering your water. It's the most overlooked principles there are in management, and look at where you need water. You know, if your neighbor has it, you're missing that concept of why deer should even call yours home. So the biggest advice I always give to everyone is just look at where you can get water this year, whether it be a tub this year just to get something going, or if you can get a pond in, but start really paying attention to what your deer are telling you. Um, I look at areas where... Let's say there is those infernal ponds I'm talking about where they're kind of just the, you know, up oh, I'm here and now I'm gone. But look at those ponds. Look how your deer are interacting with them. If they're pounding those areas when they are present, you're lacking water. So you need to start getting water on your property. Um, you know, it's no different than walk, looking at browse in your, in your land. If they're browsing on less desirable species, you need better browse. So it's no different with water. Watch those areas. Let the deer tell you what you need. Um, to be more successful. No, that's awesome. I I always say something very similar. Um, I try to be everything my neighbors are and more. So if there's yep. if there's everything they have, I want all that and then some. So that's um that's very cool. So you have me thinking back to something I just came to my mind, or I should have asked you earlier, um, like cattails and lowland area. Kind of, kind of getting off subject here, but say you have these yeah. cattails, or, or you have a lowland area like my backwoods of my property, where you're not getting a ton of regrowth and it's, it's standing water for a lot of the year. It might dry out in the fall or late summer, but it's wet pretty much a lot of the time, which is why there's only soft maple and um, bur oak in there, swamp oak. But sure, would you? What what would you put in an area like that? I mean, cattails, I don't see people transplanting cattails and planting cattails and this and that. They do a pretty good job of the, you know, the, their cells on something like that. Um, it's kind of like one of your ephemeral water holes where it's mm-hmm. there a lot of the time. How do you deal with something like that? Yeah, because yeah, you're just kind of more seeing just a more... I guess almost a marginal area, so more just kind of wet, damp ground rather than actual, a lot of times, water standing. Yeah, it's kind of a transition between a large swamp and then some dry ground. It's a, it's a probably a eight-acre 
area, maybe four acres wide. It's just kind of a slow transition, very flat ground from swamp up to some dry ground. Yeah, so, I mean, in those aspects, as long as you're getting, I mean, if you're getting some sunlight, I mean, that is where you can get a lot of these marginal species to start growing, to start giving yourself some some food and even some cover in a way. Um, so, actually, like a lot of your rushes and things that way, they do really, really well in that marginal ground. And, and they can grow through three to four feet in height. So you're almost kind of making an area where they can walk through field cover, but they can also, you know, you can mix in some other, you know, kind of most like aquatic forb species like your plantains and um, the arrowhead I talked about. You can mix those all in, and you're almost making a, a food plot where normally one would never exist. Um, you know, so that's where taking advantage of a lot of these different um, aquatic plants could be a, a big time help in that transition area. Okay, so follow up, do you go in there with a the herbicide prior and take care of maybe what I've seen, like swamp cabbage, or I'm not sure if that's what it's even called, but like things along that nature, something you might not want and undesirable? Yeah, I mean, it depends. So are you thinking like maybe skunk cabbage? I think so. Is that what, yeah, skunk cabbage, not swamp cabbage, sorry, yep. But ironically, actually, deer love to eat skunk cabbage. Okay. Um, yeah, turkeys yeah, so, like it too. Yep. So it can be poisonous at some point, um, but a lot of times, once again, they're smarter than us. Right, <laughs> but, uh, right. But, yeah, I mean, those things are obviously all good, but, you know, you can even get other things like marsh marigolds, another one a deer will feed on. Um, you know, the horse stem or horse tail, I mean, a lot of that stuff's really good. But I would, uh, with those areas, if you'd get something like, let's say, reed canary grass, super invasive, that is something you'd have to spray out. Um mainly being because it's going to out-compete anything you plant. Um, so, yeah, when you get those undesirables, you definitely have to go in and spray before putting the seed down or even the plugs in. Either you'll find, just like with anything else, is any invasive is going to overrun the, the roost. Okay, great info. And do you have uh, anywhere that you buy these special aquatic type of plants or, you know, like your – Skunk cabbage or your arrowhead or or the horse tail, anything like that. Yep. Do you do you buy these somewhere specific? Yep. So we actually have a nursery that's really close to our office. It's uh it's actually called Kester's, um, but they specialize in a lot of different um, habitat for, or I should say, more aquatic based plants for habitat. Uh, so they deal with like a lot of actually um, duck ponds and things that way. So they deal with a lot of different duck forages but they also have a lot of things for whitetail as well. So we get a lot of stuff from them. We also have a lot of other nurseries that do more plugs in case you want that a little more quicker to the to get something going. Um, we do, I'd say more people do plugs than anything uh, just because you're getting a little better, better root base, things that have a little more success than you do with seed. But uh, so there's a variety I know in our in our state um, that basically they give their, their plugs and their seed nationwide. Um, because I don't think there's really that many aquatic-based um, nurseries um, around. No, that's awesome information. Well, I think that might be all I have on uh, on this subject at the moment, but I know it's not all I'm going to think about over the next three <laughs> hours. Um, that was very informative, Zach. Thanks so much. Like, I didn't know that deer ate the, the skunk cabbage. I've... I've I kind of stay out of that area, but I'm going to pay a little sure. closer attention this year and see, because um, it's kind of in this area where I think I could have high enough ground to plant a food plot of sorts, but sure. 
what we're kind of realizing tonight is that that may be a food plot of sorts already. So, Absolutely. Very interesting stuff. Well, the one last thing that I like to ask our listeners is about a tree. What is your favorite tree? If you've heard us talk about this before, you know it can just be uh, any sort of hunting tree, habitat tree, um, browse or mass tree. Why? Why do you like it? It could be a tree you killed your first buck out of, something along those lines. We always get some pretty cool answers. So, Yeah, I mean, I kind of, I'm torn between two. So the aquatic side, side of me, um, I mean, I love like a corkscrew willow um, just because, for one, I mean, it's a neat-looking tree, but, two, it's just so resilient in the aquatic world. Um, but that's the aquatic side of me. But as far as just in general, when I mix the two, I mean, I, I love a swamp white oak. Okay. Um, I just love that you can take advantage of an area that typically doesn't grow trees very well. Um, they can withstand flooding like nobody's business. Um, I just love because they're kind of just like the tough guy of the, of the swamp. So, you know, wherever the other tree starts dying off, they kind of hold true. And then they also have obviously mass for, you know, a bunch of different uh, species of animals. So I'd say that's probably one of my tops is probably a swamp white oak. Very nice. Very nice. Do you have any of either, or either of those on your property in Wisconsin? Yep, and I actually plant them in all my wet areas. <laughs> oh, very cool. Do you plant anything else in your wet areas? Um, a lot of red oak or dogwood. Um, mm-hmm. quite a bit of that. Um, we also do a lot of like uh, we even put tag alders and stuff like that for a little more cover areas. Um, but I'd say some of those are a main for our wet areas. I've done some hybrid willows, but that's more for when I do uh, natural screening. Yeah, um, we'll do a lot of that, and then you know wait till they get a little bigger, and then we kind of hinge them and and prune them for a way to actually make a natural fence. Yes, sir. I've seen that done, and it does work. That is cool. Well, Zach, thank you so much for coming on. Anything else you want to yeah. hit before we wrap this up? No, I really appreciate. it. I'm glad we could finally uh, touch base here. Um, yes, sir. It was but awesome. Yeah. But, yeah, risky other than that, I mean, if anyone ever wants more information, I wrote a, a paper a while back actually about EHD, aquatic, um, or EHD issues and aquatic solutions, it's called. Um, you know, so that's always something you can reach out to me. It's one of my passions is trying to help slowly not fix but reduce the issue out there. That is a great idea. And where can everybody else find you online if they want interest in their, in their ponds or, or wildlife setups for that? Yep, so, I mean, on Facebook, I'm pretty active. Um, you know, we have a page for our company, Wisconsin Lake Pond Resource. Other than that, I'm pretty active, like, on the various groups. Um, a lot of my articles, though, are um, actually, I own a land management company as well called Creek Bottom Land Management, and I write a lot of my, my water articles on there as well. So um, I try to get out on the web as much as I can and then everywhere I can. So, Of course. Well, hopefully this will uh, get a few new people to check you out. That'd be cool. Well, I appreciate it, guys. Yeah, thanks for hopping on here. We really appreciate it, Zach. Thanks. Thanks, Zach. Thank you much. All right, thank you, guys. Bye. Thank you so much, Zach, for coming on the show this week. We really appreciate it. I had a great conversation with you, and uh, good luck this fall. Keep in touch, buddy. Thank you to the listeners for tuning in once again. We can't do this without you guys. We really appreciate it. All the good reviews you're leaving. I'm sending more details out this week. So if you have left us a good review and I haven't gotten in contact with you, please reach out so I can find your address and get you a free decal. Guys, those decals are going out because people leave us great reviews either on Facebook, Spotify, um, 
iTunes reviews on the podcast app. All that stuff helps us, you know, track up there with the best of them in the podcast world. So we really thank you guys for, for doing that. All right, we got another good show coming next week, so tune in for that. I want to uh, thank the listeners, thank Zach again, our sponsors over at um, HabitatPodcast.com. We have Packer Max, HuntWise, Killer Food Plots, 5-2 Outdoors, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, The Habitat Hook, and Stony Creek Realty. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll be back soon with another episode as we become better habitat managers.